Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Metazoa Podcast, a show about nature by those who love nature. I'm your host, Phoebe Carnes, a passionate biology student and your resident alcoholic. And I'm your co-host, Jacob Dunford, your biology-flavored comp sci major. Whoop, whoop. I am very excited to be here. It's been a long Me week. <laughs> yes, it has. It has been a long week. I just, I like, I can't believe it's February already, but then also it feels like it's taken us forever to get here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's those those long January, February months. I feel like those are the two longest months of the year. Is January Which is and crazy February because February is the shortest. <laughs> yeah, isn't it twenty nine days this year? Yeah, we're in a leap year, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, I think we're in a leap year this year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really weird stuff. Well. I think we have a really fun episode today. I think it's going to be a little bit of a shorter episode, but like, let me tell you, Jacob. So as I was like trying to write out the notes for this week's episode, like last week, there was like literally nothing going on. Like I was checking the news <laughs> every day. <laughs> like, can someone just discover new species or just like do something? Okay. Literally nothing. Radio silence. And I was getting concerned because I was like, well, what are we going to talk about? Mm, that's, <laughs> and then- that's, that's really funny. I see that you mentioned that because as I'm looking through these uh, these headlines, I'm like, I saw this independently of you on my on my Instagram, social, whatever, social media feeds. Like I've seen all of these in the past like week. Exactly. And it was just like this week. It's just like everything just like boom, boom, boom. All these different news stories just piled up. So what do you say we just jump right into it? Looking, looking through some of these, I'm very excited to talk about some of these. Oh, yes. Well, let's start off with one that I, I know that you and I are both going to be super hyped about. A 325-million-year-old shark graveyard discovered in Mammoth Cave National Park. In Mammoth Cave. We have some history there, don't we, Phoebe? We have some history there, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit more as we're going (laughs) through this story. Um, But let's just give for, for our listeners who maybe are not aware of Mammoth Cave and all of its wonder and glory. Splendor. Splendor, yes. So Mammoth Cave is the longest cave system in the world that we know of, with over 420 miles of labyrinths cutting through limestone. And it keeps getting longer. We keep discovering (laughs) more and more (laughs) passages. Yeah, like all the time. Um, and, and if that's like hard for people to visualize what that looks like, that's roughly the difference, uh, or sorry, the distance between Boston and Washington, D.C. So, yeah, huge, massive. If you go anywhere in Kentucky, you're <laughs> there's a pretty good chance you're at least standing over a cave or standing over Mammoth Cave. Exactly, and not just Kentucky, like Alabama, I think has yeah. a little bit, yeah. like Tennessee. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. It's isn't there like a theory that Mammoth Cave like might be connected to pretty much all the cave systems on the East yeah. Coast or something? I don't know if there's any like anything to that, but I have heard that. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised to be honest with you if it was if it was true. Um, mm. But like one of the some of the kind of like interesting things about Mammoth Cave is that it's super cold in there, um, and it, it provides shielding from the elements as well. So it's a great place to actually discover fossils because they're so well preserved. Mm-hmm. And the rock, the actual rock beds of Mammoth Cave formed 320 to 360 million years ago, 
but the actual passageways within the cave, which have been carved out by underground rivers, only formed 10 to 15 million years ago, which only. is really young. And, yeah, <laughs> geologically, that is very young. Yeah, that's pretty young. 20 versus 10. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't think I realized when we went there that it was that young. I think I – I don't know if they mentioned it on the I don't think tour they that did. we went on. But. I actually don't know if they mentioned – how long ago Mammoth Cave was formed, actually, when we went on the tour. We didn't go on a very extensive tour. It was mostly... There's a, there's a lot of stuff to cover and not a lot of time to do it. So Yeah, so just for some background, like, Jacob and I went to Mammoth Cave last September for mm-hmm. Labor Day. Over Labor Day? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was over Labor Day, which was apparently, like, the busiest time of the year for Evidently, them. Yeah. <laughs> it was quite we had busy. No, we had no idea. Yeah, we, we didn't know what we were doing. Um... And so, so we went there and we did the extended historic tour, which was mm-hmm. two and a half hours, three hours. Something like that. I think it was like six yeah. miles. No, it was, no, it couldn't have been that much. I don't remember. It wasn't very long. Yeah, yeah. Um, which was a wonderful tour to learn about the history and, mm-hmm. and a little bit about like the geology and the that sort of stuff of the cave too. Um, but yeah, it it's crazy like – the pictures do not do justice for just how like no, huge no. the yeah. cave is <laughs> like not not just and in how, length but just like size how dark it is nobody ever like oh gosh, thinks about yes. the fact that caves are actually dark there's no light in there and so they have like all these lights set up of course so you can see but obviously they don't want those lights running all the time because their electricity bill would be through the roof as i imagine it probably already is um mm-hmm. And so they had the lights turned off, and so the tour guide would come through, and he would flip the lights back on, and it would be complete and total darkness. You'd even know the path was going that way. And then the lights flick on, and you're like, oh, my God, there's a cave. Yeah, yeah. Well, we did that get- <laughs> Literally. Well, do you remember that one part when um, it was like we – so we – are going down in the cave sort of on this tour we kind of start at the entrance and then sort of work our way down and then come up learning about the history of the cave and stuff like that and there's this one part where you're in this corridor that goes to the underground river that they have in there or mm-hmm. one of them anyway um and there's these benches and as the park ranger was kind of telling us some other facts yes, and stuff yes. you're just like sitting mm-hmm. on this bench with this abyss of darkness behind you mm-hmm. <laughs> like a little terrifying <laughs> and then he was like most of the time these benches are under the water <laughs> yes oh well didn't they also have like markers about like it's flooded before and it was like showing like, yeah um, the, so uh like Phoebe was saying, it's like a it kind of it kind of looks like an amphitheater, but it just so there's some benches, um, but as you just go down, there's just nothing. It's just empty black void, um, and there's a river down there, like a mm-hmm. uh, like an actual river that you that you sh- definitely should not go swim in. No, <laughs> but it, it, it's it's not like a creek. It, it's it's an actual river. Well, that makes it sound like it's moving very fast, but it's a cave, so. Yeah, uh, but they used to do boat tours and stuff down there. I don't think they do those anymore. Uh, I, I think when we were looking on the website, it said that those had been like canceled. Yeah, uh, but they used to do boat tours down there. Um, and behind our tour guide, who was up at the top of this amphitheater kind of place, uh, there was a big rod, and it had markings of like the highest it, the water had ever been in certain years, mm-hmm. and uh, the highest it had ever been which I cannot remember what year it said that was. It wasn't very long ago. I think was it was it like, like the 20... 90 or maybe, no, maybe it was, it was earlier than that. Yeah. Yeah. I maybe it was. 
Yeah. Um, it could have been the 90s. I don't know. The point is, it was like several feet above our heads. Yeah. Uh, whereas before, it was like, like at that moment, it was way past down, down below the benches. Like we couldn't even see that there was water there. If you didn't know anything about Mammoth Cave, you wouldn't even know there was water down there until that guy, until the tour guide told us that there's water up down there. Yeah, it's it's crazy. And and one last thing about the abysses before we get back to the sharks. But <laughs> I think the, the tour itself was so fun. It was so cool. I learned a lot. And we're definitely going to go back to do some like more mm. like the natural part of the cave or whatever. But like the pits, Jacob, the oh pits. Oh my god, the pits. So I, I don't think when you go into a cave, which is underground, that you, you know, for those like me who kind of have a little bit of a fear of heights, a little bit nervous about that. You would not think really, that that I would. I had no idea. <laughs> you, you would not think that that would come into play in a cave, right? Oh, you would be so wrong. So there's like this part of, of the tour where we're going by. They call them the pits, which is an awful <laughs> name. Um, and there's one that they like have lights that are sort of going down. And it was like 200 feet or something. Like it was super far down. Mm. And you just, you're on this like little metal bridge and you're just like looking down over this pit and, off to the side. And <laughs> mind you, the bridge is see through. Yes. Like it's a, it, the bridge is a grate. So you could see through your, <laughs> between your feet, you could see all the way down. Which was awful, terrible. That was, that was awful. That it's so. I mean, I, there's a reason they did it like that. But that's that's funny that it's it's like that. I know. But like, there's that an umbrella wasn't... down there. Do you remember that? There was, yeah. Which was quite yeah, there was an umbrella quite sad. Down there. Um, never gonna come out It'll of the be cave there forever. But, yeah, <laughs> like probably preserved and pristine. But <laughs> the, that wasn't the worst one because that one had lights, so you could see the bottom. The worst one was when we had to walk <laughs> over it. Also on the same like style of bridge with the metal grates that you can look down um and it was just this darkness like it's just, I, it I'm, just I'm, a, I'm convinced it went all the way through the earth like it went all the way <laughs> to the other side like <laughs> and you have you have to walk over it to continue on the tour and i don't know if you remember but i was just like gripping onto the rail and just like shaking <laughs> It was it was quite quite interesting, quite an interesting yeah. experience. But the whole point is that Mammoth Cave is like this really cool ecosystem um, that that has the ability to really preserve these fossils, which makes it a really good place. Um, which I didn't even know this existed. But the um, Paleontological Research Inventory—have you ever heard of that? I can't say I have. You're right. Yeah, it's it's really cool. So it's um, the whole point of this this project is to catalog the fossils found in america's national park so they do a lot of collaboration with the park service um across across the states which is really really cool and they've been really um researching and surveying the passageways of mammoth cave for reasons that we just discussed so here's a quote from john paul hudnett i think is how you pronounce his name i hope um and he's one of the researchers of the inventory, and he stated, quote, it turns out Mammoth Cave's passages have scores and scores of fossilized sharks, end quote. Of all things to be found I, in Mammoth Cave. Although, to be fair, sharks are really old, and Mammoth yes. Cave is really old, and Kentucky is very well known for their abundance of fossils. Like there's, you, could, you could stick your shovel in the ground, and you might find – you could probably find an ammonite. Like, it's, it's wild. So, granted uh, – it's kind of crazy that I never thought about that before. That right? the, the sharks 
because that you would find shark fossils in Kentucky, especially in Mammoth Cave. So I, exactly. I, I don't know. That makes sense to me looking back on it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember when we were driving through Kentucky on the way. I mean, you would have. I don't know exactly, uh, would you call them shales? I'm not sure, but you would have I parts of the mountain that would be bare, and you, you could just see like the rock layers going back probably mm-hmm. millions of years, maybe even you know, 325 million years, I don't know, but you could like see so many rock layers just along mm-hmm. the highway. Like <laughs> it, was, it was so crazy. Um, Kentucky has some incredible geological history, and if any of you are interested in that part, of things definitely definitely do some research because there's a lot there's, <laughs> there's so a lot much. of stuff going on there there's so much it's so cool we should we should definitely think about like doing an episode where we dive more into that because it is so fascinating Agreed. but <laughs> i the reason i brought up some of our fun stories about traversing through mammoth cave is because that's what these researchers had to do to get to these fossils, right? Um, and and so some of this, these are just a few things these researchers had to had to sort of brave to to do this. Some parts required them to crawl on their bellies for a quarter of a mile. Okay. Just okay. to reach. imagine, like having to having to try and go back, like go backwards after that. Yeah, like no, if you're you. just stuck in the middle of it, and then you're like, "Oh, we can't do this anymore," and having to, because you you would have, I imagine you would have to like army crawl backwards. Right, that's awful. That's yeah, uh, not fun. Um, no, no thanks. And then, of course, squeeze through some narrow cave walls, um, which we we kind of had some experience with that, mm. but I'm sure not as. What um, was it? Fat man's. Fat man's agony was it? Fat man's agony. That's what it was. Yeah. 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 Where the walls were just like super, super close together and it kind of like jagged in and out. And so you had to like duck down. You had to like think thin. Get on your tippy toes and shuffle like a crab. A little bit, a little bit. But I I imagine that's probably pretty tame compared to what the researchers had to go through. I'm sure. And man, doing that, I felt so bad because they started the tour off like, you know, we want to make sure that we keep this cave as, as pristine as possible, so <laughs> try not to touch the cave walls. And then we get to this part, and, and our park ranger, his name was Dave, I think, wasn't it? Or I think something? his name was Dave. Um, he, was he was great. And and he said, you know, try not to touch the rocks, but if you have to, we understand. And, I mean, you you couldn't go through there without, like, having to grab onto the walls to yeah. balance yourself. It was crazy. But these and researchers... All the, all the, the rocks, all the, uh, like, outcroppings, they were worn yes. smooth from people, like, you know, rubbing against them as just they're walking through or grabbing onto them. So. Yeah, exactly. Um but again, I'm sure that does not hold a candle to the sort of narrow passageways no, these researchers had to had not to the, endure. <laughs> the well worn, uh, paved, lit up trails that, that yeah. we experienced. Yeah, that that's the key word here: light. Um, <laughs> yeah. But they they braved all of these um, obstacles, and this led to the discovery of two brand new shark species. Which is Ooh, really cool. Two. Okay. Yeah. So I'm going to try to pronounce these names. I am probably <laughs> going to do a terrible job, but this is this is my attempt. So the first one is Trogloclodotus trembly, I think, um, and Glickmanius careforum. <laughs> Glickmanius. <laughs> Glickmanius. I think that one's right, but <laughs> it's it's fun. Um, and so the, these sharks are both ancient species of tinicanths, which are sort of oh, a, okay. a group of sharks. 
They're the mm-hmm. ancient cousins of many modern day sharks, but they possess these comb like barbs on their spines, which is pretty cool. They were very well defended. Um, barbs on their spines? That's interesting. Yeah, like you know how some fish have the little barbs on their fins? Mm-hmm. I imagine it's like that, but just oh, all along. Yeah, just all along the spine, basically, is what it sounds like to me anyway. So pretty cool, like pretty cool sharks. I feel like that'd be uncomfortable to have as a feature. Like spikes jetting out of your skin. That might be true, but I think it'd be even more uncomfortable for something to try and attack you and then get a mouthful of spikes. So That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. I understand. Um, I understand. Yeah, you know, it must have done pretty well for them because there's quite a few of them <laughs> that we know still of. Here. <laughs> still here. <laughs> um, so, so let's let's dive into these species a little bit more because they're pretty cool. So, um, Trogloclodotus, I think is how you say it, means cave branching tooth, and this is a reference to their their teeth kind of look like forks almost. So mm-hmm. shark teeth are so cool because they're all so uniquely shaped. Um, <laughs> and it's it's like crazy. Just look at shark teeth. I mean, they look like something otherworldly. But yeah, this one kind of like looks like forks. I don't know. I, they, maybe they have some pictures of it. I'm not entirely sure. Um, but yeah, pretty cool stuff. I, all uh, I can find is the picture you have on this document of uh, two new ancient shark species. Yeah, I'm sure. I don't know. I'm sure they're going to publish like a paper or something that'll probably have all the the pictures and the measurements and stuff. But yeah, pretty cool. That's cool. And what's also really cool is that their species epithet, so Trimbley, that last part of their name, is actually in honor of the park superintendent, Barclay Trimble, who apparently actually discovered the first specimen of the species in 2019. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. So I'm not sure if this is a case of, I mean, the pandemic probably did not help oh, with, with this discovery, but I'm not sure if this and is a case of... Maybe the cave got hit especially hard compared to a lot of other other uh, national parks. True, uh, true. Because Na- Mammoth Cave is one of the only natural national parks that is entirely inside. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> like, Smokey saw an influx of visitors because... There's so much space outside. It's kind of the whole point is like you get away from everybody and in turn find everybody, of course. Um, But Mammoth Cave, all that air is just stuck there. There's nowhere for it to go. And so Mammoth Cave got hit especially hard compared to a lot of other national parks when it came to visitation and incoming revenue. So I'd say you're probably right. Yeah, yeah. Well, Mammoth Cave is also like one of the only national parks that's like not self-guided. Like you go to the Smokies or Yellowstone, and it's just all you. Like you're doing what you want to do. You like you're kind of doing your own little adventure. But Mammoth Cave, you don't really ha- you. They don't just let you walk around the cave all willy nilly. Like <laughs> you know, you have to go down there with a with a ranger, um, which mm-hmm. obviously you can't do during the pandemic. So yeah, yeah. So I think little- they shut the cave down like entirely. Probably, yeah. Because there is that small section that is self-guided. Mm-hmm. It's not very big, of course. It's just a, like a little – I say little, but it's a big group um, that with some uh, – what do you call those? Like, like information? The, the, um, yeah, yeah. Boards, I guess. Yeah. Kiosks, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so there is a little tiny self-guided section, but that that's it. 
Uh, so yeah. I imagine they, I don't, because Dave told us all about it. I don't, but I don't remember if he said they closed the cave down or not. I feel like they would have. I would have to imagine they probably did, which also is not going to help because that's the whole reason you go to Mammoth Cave National Park is to see the cave. Um, see even the though cave. they have some pretty cool water stuff that when we go back, I'd like to do mm-hmm. as well. But like, There's plenty of stuff to do outside of the cave, but the yeah. cave is definitely the main the main draw. So yeah, exactly. yeah I imagine it's it, sure. I imagine that COVID probably did do a number for efficiency. Yeah, for sure. And then also like with paleontology, sometimes it just takes a while because like all you have is the bones. And so you're having to compare that to all the other bones that you have that are similar. And then you're having to be like, well, this <laughs> one's actually a new species. Yeah. So it just probably took a little bit. But yeah, so Trogloclodotus, Trimble, um, pretty cool one. And paleontologists believe that they were 10 to 12 feet in length. That's a pretty sizable shark. That's a big shark. That's yeah, a big shark. It's a pretty big shark. What's the do you do you know at the top of your head what the biggest great white shark recorded has been? Is it like eight? Um, I want to say maybe even twenty feet. Twenty? Okay. Never no, mind. they're huge. Maybe twenty might be a little eight? bit much, but like they're they're big. I watched Shark Week. Why did I think it was eight? <laughs> eight feet. <laughs> Anyways. That's, a, no, no, that's still a pretty sizable shark. Yeah, it's definitely not one that you would want to probably encounter by yourself, um, unless you're crazy like me. And then the next one, we have Glickmanius. Very fun name. Glickmanius. Glickmanius cariform. Very similar size, about 10 to 12 feet in length, with very strong teeth. I don't know what that means necessarily, <laughs> um, but that is what it was described as. So strong teeth, um, Okay. which means that it probably hunted other sharks, bony fish, and then the shelled ancestors of modern-day squid. So th- so they were eating the hard-shelled stuff, mm-hmm. which is kind of cool. So the way that we just sort of discovered this one is that there's some fossilized gills and, partial, and a partial jaw in the cave, which I didn't know gills could fossilize. That was a shock to me. I didn't realize that was a thing, I, but... I don't know. if that, that must not be a very common thing. Probably not. I imagine gills are probably much more fragile compared to everything else so. yeah well sh- well sharks don't fossilize very well anyway all you get no. is the teeth and sometimes the jaw but yeah i've never heard of gills fossilizing so that was a little i was like oh okay that's kind of cool but there, there's a slight problem with this jacob because it's in the cave but it's located within a passage that is too small for humans to enter <laughs> so we have not so extracted these yet <laughs> yeah how did they wait how do they know that it's in there if they couldn't fit. So it was not clear in the article, but I, I have like two sort of thoughts about it. One is that maybe they can see in this little passageway and kind of saw like, I don't know, on the wall or the floor or whatever. Must like, be like oh. a very like light shining down on it. Like you just happened to, it's happened to be perfectly. Cause like, I'm imagining there's like a hole or something yeah. like that, yeah, yeah. Uh, that they see through. And I'm just imagining them like shining their light through and just seeing on the other side of the wall, this this set of teeth and gills and everything. Yeah, maybe it was exactly <laughs> like that. Um, and I, I would guess too, I mean, they probably have little um, like rovers and stuff that That's they can just sit in and about. Maybe, maybe do it that way. But yeah, they're still sitting in the cave, however many mm-hmm. feet down. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So 
pretty cool stuff. These are pretty cool species, and both species likely hunted close to shore about 325 million years ago, like modern day, I don't know if you know what lemon sharks are, but kind of those smaller, yeah, yeah, those smaller species. And this was when, so... 325 million years ago, there was this seaway that connected modern-day North America, Europe, and Africa. So just this kind of big ocean, oh, basically. Cool. Yeah. Um, that today would be Kentucky and Alabama and sort of those states. But uh, when Pangea yeah. formed, so this was before Pangea was even a thing. So then Pangea forms, right? These continents all come together. Mm-hmm. And this caused the seaway to disappear, which probably was not good for the sharks, I would imagine. <laughs> I, can imagine um, not. <laughs> I would imagine that's probably so not like, very fun. It's like a, a river, sort of. Like, obviously, yeah, like an ocean a river. river. Is way, way small. An ocean, an ocean river. Yeah. That's <laughs> wild. Yeah, isn't it? That's crazy to think about. Yeah. An so, ocean river. Okay. Pretty cool. And it's pretty cool to think about how many other species could possibly be in Mammoth Cave perfectly preserved that we just we just don't know about yet so pretty cool project i thought that was a fun piece of news i feel like we are very connected to mammoth cave at this point (laughs) um (laughs) but sticking with the shark theme for for a little bit we have the first ever footage of a baby great white shark off the coast of california this one i I sent this one to you i'm sure you saw it before i sent it to you but I think I saw like the day that you sent it to me though. So it was like yeah. pretty much the same time, but this is super, super cool. So for some, for some context here, we, we love great white sharks. People, people know about them. Some people fear them, but we know quite a bit about great white sharks, except anything about their reproduction. We have no clue like how it works or where they give birth or like how big the babies are we, like we have no idea about any of that stuff which is kind of crazy so this this has been sort of the holy shark grail for many a decade <laughs> of, of people wanting to figure out where in the world are great white sharks having their babies we want to know so back in july of 2023 there were researchers in santa barbara california and they spotted something pretty historic. So they had some drones that were, um, so so sort of the story goes is that they had seen a adult female who appeared to be pregnant. So they were just following her. And at some point, as they're watching her from the drone, she dips below the surface. They can't see her anymore. And then lo and behold, you know, 30 minutes, I don't remember exactly how long later, they don't see her again, but they see this little, what appeared to be baby great white shark it it's was a about baby, f- but it's five feet in length. Yes. <laughs> if that gives you any idea of how absolutely massive these things are. Yeah. Which, again, we've never seen one, but that that would be about right for what we sort of predicted a baby great white shark, what, what their size might be based on other species we do know about. And even just some more icing on the cake here, it appeared that it was even shedding some of its embryonic layer. So like, it, it was, was new. It was real new. <laughs> super um, new. Super new. Of course, the team cannot confirm that this was a newborn. And um, again, they just say that, you know, this is in the expected size range. It appeared to be almost pure white, which is not usual because great whites are usually sort of gray on the top and white on the bottom. Mm-hmm. But this one appeared to be kind of a solid color, which is a little bit unusual. So 
Super cool stuff. Carlos uh, Guana, I believe is how you pronounce their name. I think that's right. Who was the the one that actually filmed this footage, stated, quote, This is one of the holy grails of shark science. No one has ever been able to pinpoint where they are born, nor has anyone seen a newborn baby shark alive, end quote. Mm. So not only do we have, like, the first footage of a newborn great white, which is huge in of itself, but also right. we now might have some sort of confirmation or some hinting towards Santa Barbara being one of these birthing grounds that great whites might have. That's wild. Yeah, exactly. Because um, the team had also seen a, not just that one pregnant female, but a few pregnant females in the area. Um, at that time too so it's quite possible that this might be one of those birthing grounds which is pretty important for us to know about so we can better protect <laughs> and learn about the species of course so yeah super fun what do you think that's, what do you think? that's yeah that's awesome i'm excited to see what what comes from that because i imagine that they're going to have a much closer eye on santa barbara now which if they're right then that should lead to some pretty exciting discoveries yeah, absolutely. I mean, the coast of California is such a biodiverse ecosystem mm-hmm. anyway. There's there's so many species of, of marine life that live out there. So to now have it being like, oh, well, then this is where the gray whites go to have their babies. Like, that's just such a cool idea, I think. Mm-hmm. But let's let's move on to I got a little mystery for you, Jacob. OK, OK. I'll, yeah. I'm a big fan of the mysteries. Yeah. So. Let's go to Africa for a second. There's a new study that finds that lion hunts are being impeded by an unexpected foe. All right. So here's okay. a little bit of information. Then I'm going to see like what your, what your prediction about this might be. So lions in East Africa are making fewer zebra kills. And the reason why is quite unexpected, quite shocking, if, I'm, if I might say. Okay. So here's a little bit of information for you. Elephants in the area have been eating more acacia trees. Acacias are are pretty large trees, but usually elephants and other animals do not eat acacias. So elephants, for some reason, are eating more acacia trees, and this is removing the cover for lions to stalk their prey. So not only are the acacias getting removed, which is which does provide a lot of cover, but it's also opening up the area for like the smaller sort of understory grazers to come in and remove even more cover is sort of the idea. Hmm. And when I say the lion kills are down, I don't mean by like, oh, just a little bit. I mean that zebra kills by lions were roughly three times less than average. Whoa, all because they're losing their acacia trees? Yes. But there's a very specific reason as to why the acacia trees are, are now getting eaten by the elephants. Because like I said, that's highly abnormal for any animal to eat the acacia trees. Right. So, do you have any sort of idea as to what might be going on here? <laughs> I know, yeah, I know. I got it. I, <laughs> I know exactly what's happening, but I want you to figure it out on your own. Got you. Well, Jacob... The answer, the answer will shock you. So there's this really cool symbiotic relationship that acacias have with acacia ants. So acacia ants are these little ants that actually live- eating the lions? No, but that would be kind of cool though. (laughs) But these little acacia ants live in the acacias um, and the acacias might even provide them food. So like the acacias might have these growths that the ants can kind of live in and then 
they sometimes give them like little sugary foods and stuff. And in return, the ants actually protect them from herbivores like elephants and giraffes and all these other things, which in and of itself is a very interesting thought, like these tiny ants warding off an elephant. But, you know, somehow, (laughs) somehow they do. (laughs) But there's a problem because now there's a problem. We have these bigger ants. They're called big headed ants. And these ants, I know, I know. Are they kicking the acacia ants out? Oh, they're not just kicking them out. They're eating them. They are feasting upon the acacia ants. And these big-headed ants, they don't care about the acacias. So they they come in, they eat all the acacia ants, and then they just leave. And they go on to the next acacia and do the same thing. And that's leaving the acacia trees open for elephants to come in and eat their fill, knock the trees down, do what elephants do. And it's affecting the lions. That's wild. So it's very similar in my mind to how, like how the wolves brought the beaver, brought the rivers back. Yeah, how it was like it really didn't involve them, but it did. Like it was a cascade, <laughs> and so we've got these ants that are somehow keeping these grazers away. And so it's not really necessarily that these grazers, like elephants and such, they don't like the acacias. It's just that it's not worth. The, the trouble to get get them is what it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so we've, then we've got these little ants keeping them all away. The ants go away, and then the grazers come in. What? Why now? If these yeah. why are these big headed big headed ants just now getting a taste for acacia ant? Well, so flesh? that's that's a great question. So. I, I think the the jury's still out on exactly we, we know that big headed ants prey on other species of ants and other animals too, but the reason why suddenly they're like spreading at a rapid rate across East Africa, because usually they're they're not super native to this part of Africa. So like whether it's just they're spreading naturally in a way or like humans are importing them or something, I think the jury is still out on that. But the the kind of scariest part of this is that there's not really a great way to stop this. Like ants are hard to fight. <laughs> ants are ants hard are to really fight. Hard to fight. Like, what are you gonna do? Like, put you can't just put pesticides out there, of course, and you're not gonna be able to. I mean, if you if you go out and kill a million of these big headed ants in one day, there's twelve million right behind them. Like, you're not gonna be able to yeah, do a whole lot. <laughs> no. Um. So so that's kind of the scary part. Um. Of course, you know, the lions, it's not like their population's dropping or something. They're just kind of fighting different prey, but... Just not eating the zebras, but the zebra yeah, population, yeah. I imagine, is growing. It could, yeah. Um, but I think this, more than anything, just illustrates, like, how these... The careful balance. The careful balance and, like, the interconnectedness between all these species, right? Mm. Which is, I just think it's interesting that the king of the jungle is being thwarted by tiny little ants. Little ants. Yeah. <laughs> Just that was very interesting to me. That's that is a very interesting story. I know. Um, so speaking of insects, Jacob, the apocalypse mm-hmm. is upon us. I, okay. Cicada oh, apocalypse. cicadas! So yes. They are coming. Oh they my are Lord. coming. Tell and us, let, tell let, us about the cicadas. Oh, let me tell you about this. This is insanity. Okay, so in just a few months, the spring and summer, billions, perhaps even trillions of cicadas God. are going to emerge in a rare double brood event that has not been seen since the days of Thomas Jefferson, our good friend TJ, and will not be seen again until um, 2,245. 
<laughs> yeah. That's a lot of cicadas. <laughs> That's a lot of cicadas. So we got two broods that we're working with here. We got the Great Southern Brood, which emerges every 13 years, and is also, I believe, the largest brood in the United States anyway. I seem to remember reading that. Um, so big, huge. And then we have the Northern Illinois Brood. Great, you could even say. Great, indeed. Then we got the Northern Illinois Brood here, which emerges every 17 years. And it's it's quite um, unusual for them to overlap like this, but it does occasionally happen, mm-hmm. which is going to lead to gazillions of, of cicadas just everywhere, all over the place. Wonderful. Wonderful. It's unlikely that these two groups are going to directly overlap, but the fact that there are just going to be this many cicadas across Mm -hmm. the southeastern Midwest is quite insane. (laughs) It's quite wild. That's a lot of of cicadas. That's an insane amount of cicadas. And also, I was trying to look into because 13 and 17 years, like those are seem to be really strange numbers to me. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to look into like, well, do we know why they're emerging on these prime numbers or anything? These prime numbers, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and so I found a little bit of research. I think that we're still not sure, but I found a little bit of research that suggests something about this sort of not aligning with when the predators of cicadas tend to emerge. And so when the baby cicadas emerge, it's like... Um, the predators are not really around. It was like something like that. It was it was kind of strange. Don't cicadas not live very long once they reach adulthood? Isn't it like just a couple of days or do they live longer? It depends on the species. But yeah, these um, like the brood cicadas don't tend to, when they're adults, live super long. Most of their yeah. life is spent as the larvae in the ground for mm. 17 or 13 years or however long. Um, they which hatch, is- come out. Not hatch, uh, but like, you know, come out, fly around, eat things, mate, die. Pretty much. I imagine. Yeah. And also, the, the so there's like kind of two flavors of cicadas. So we got the flavors. annual cicadas. Oh. <laughs> uh, no, <laughs> also, side note, I, as I was researching, apparently cicadas are a delicacy in some parts. I imagine. Of- I imagine they are. Appar- apparently, they have a very nutty flavor. So there you go. Interesting. It's, uh, insects are very, are very um, efficient in their body plant. So I imagine they that are. cicadas are full of protein. Probably, yeah. I mean, everything loves cicadas. Everything's eaten cicadas when they emerge. But we got these two these two flavors of cicadas. We got the annual cicadas, which emerge every summer in a pretty steady stream, like end of summer, beginning of fall. But these periodical brood cicadas emerge in the spring. So it's also nice for them because now now they're able to access There's those no resources. Yeah, exactly. No competition with the other cicadas. So really interesting the cicada apocalypse and i just want to end it on this this quote from um dr jonathan larson who's an entomologist from the university of kentucky because i feel like this just really summarizes this event really well quote that month and a half period will be jam-packed with loud singing mating and then dying like the most macabre mardi gras that you've ever seen in quote <laughs> that's good that's good so like the watch most out. macabre mardi gras you've ever seen Watch out for the cicada apocalypse, as people are calling it. 
I, I meant to put the link to the website in here and then I forgot, but there is a website you can go on where it's a map of the U.S. and it'll show you like where the broods are going to emerge and sort of like this estimated distribution map of where they'll be. Um, we will indeed get some of these cicadas, Jacob. So very excited I, for that. I imagine. I imagine. Keep a lookout in early spring. <laughs> um, but yeah, very interesting. Very cool. We'll never see it again. So this is our one chance for this double. That. Maybe we'll make it. To <laughs> 2,245? <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll make it. Don't okay. Be a, don't be a Debbie Downer. You know, maybe, maybe cryo sleep will be a thing by then, and we can <laughs> we can do that. <laughs> let's let's move on to something. This is just kind of fun. I just wanted to talk about it. So I don't know how it's been over there in Charlotte for you, but but here the past couple of weeks have been frigid, super cold. It's been a little chilly. Yeah, yeah. We we've, we've had a little bit of of a winter cold snap lately. So in North Carolina and Texas, alligators are having to figure out how the heck they're going to deal with all this ice in their ponds and their streams. Like, what are they going to do? Mm-hmm. Well, alligators have kind of this unique way of dealing with this. So alligators, like a lot of other reptiles, can enter a state of torpor called brumation. Have you ever heard of brumation? I have heard of brumation. It's very, from what I, if I'm, from what I remember, there we go. It's like, it's very similar to hibernation. For uh, reptiles, where they just kind of, but they just kind of just shut everything down. Yeah, it, it's pretty similar. Um, kind of the di- the difference is basically like hibernation is something that they the animal can't really wake up from until the conditions are better in the spring or or whenever. But brumation is something that they they can still be active if the conditions improve, like in the middle of winter. If it gets warm, mm-hmm. they can just, just not thaw. brumate anymore. <laughs> pretty yeah. much, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, so what happens is when it gets too cold, the alligators will angle their noses up. So it's out of the water. So the ice, so just imagine like the ice is forming around them. They're angled Mm -hmm. up. Their nose is just barely sticking up out of the water and their metabolism is slowing. But again, unlike mammals that hibernate, they can become active once again, if the water warms up, their heartbeats can even slow to three beats per minute. Three beats per minute. Wow. So crazy. So you'll just be walking by a pond and you'll just see just a sheet of ice and then these little alligator noses sticking up out of the ice. Frozen solid. (laughs) Frozen solid. So here's a quote from a representative of Swamp Park. Never heard of that, but it's an alligator sanctuary in North Carolina, apparently. And they stated, quote, people keep asking how the swamp puppies are doing. I'm happy to report that they are frozen solid. We literally have gator <laughs> sickles right now, end quote. <laughs> I, yeah, I saw a picture of uh, this come up on my Instagram. Uh, I guess it was this past week or something like that, of the yeah. alligators like angled like that and just frozen. It's, it's so funny. I know. And then they can just He's wake like, up oh. like nothing happened. Yeah. Like, yeah. oh, guess time to freeze. Dang. Time to freeze. <laughs> so there's your cryo sleep. Literally, yeah. Just (laughs) freeze ourselves in a pond, I guess. In a marsh. Stick our noses out of the water and we'll be we'll be good. We'll We'll be be good. Well, you know, that's a fun story about ice. Here's a not so fun story about ice. Did you Uh see this this was all over social media, but I don't know if you saw, but this pod of orcas that were trapped that was trapped in drift ice off the coast of Japan. I actually have not heard about this. Okay, so this is kind of wild. So 
It's the early morning hours of February 6, 2024, this past week, and a group of fishermen are off uh, Japan's Hokkaido coast, and they spotted what appeared to be a pod of 13 orcas that were trapped in ice. So Tra- when orcas trapped in ice? <laughs> yeah, so what I what I mean is that this is in northern Japan, right? So sometimes we have drift ice that will come down from like Russia and those sort of Arctic places and it'll drift down and the orcas can get trapped in the ice, which basically means is that you can see in this image, which again, we'll post on our social media feeds, but they're all gathered in this little pool in the ice, all -hmm. of them together like that. The reason for that is because they're not able to swim under the ice long enough to reach into their pool. So they can't hold their breath long enough oh, to get to another part of the ice. That's, the orcas can't yeah. hold their breath long enough to get yeah. across. That's wild. So it must be huge. To- yeah, it's it's like this huge, I mean, just could be miles of, of drift ice just in the ocean that they can, they can, and it, it can move really fast, especially if there's a lot of wind. So it can move really fast. And that's, that's what causes them to be trapped. And that this is not a new thing. Orcas have been trapped in the same area before, and those orcas did not survive. So, oh, um, so, so this was a pretty, pretty big deal. Uh, so this this particular pod was about half a mile offshore, and they were all just in oh, this little hole. Close. Yeah, so they were pretty close to shore, but. Some people sent out drones to try and get a better idea of what was going on. And some of the orcas, I don't know if any in that picture you can see, but there were some images where it looked like some of them had some blood and injuries on their chins and their rostrum from where they're like rubbing up against the ice. You know, they're trying to get Mm -hmm. out and they're sort of injuring themselves a little bit during this. So, of course, I mean, the, the minute that this hits the news, there's there's a public outcry. People are like, we need to save these orcas. We need to get them out of this ice. So Japanese officials, they, they get on this ship and they're going out to try and investigate, but the conditions that day were too rough that they were not, not able to initiate any, any sort of rescue operation. They couldn't really Man. do anything. Right. I mean, even if they, even if the conditions were fine, you know, these animals are obviously very stressed out in this moment. Mm-hmm. They're very, they're probably very confused um, panicking, and so if if we tried to take a big ship in there to try and make a pathway it, for them, it's gonna make things worse. Yeah, you could make them bolt or do something, and and then that's not gonna be good for them either. They might turn it over again. Yeah, exactly. I mean, <laughs> um, so you don't you don't want that <laughs> at all. So they so these people were just kind of like, well, we're just gonna maybe hope that the strong that there's some winds that come through to break the ice up because that's that's really all that we can do at this point. Now, happily, that same evening, they sort of, they went back out there to check up on the orcas and it looked like they had moved north. So they had found another pool um, north of where they originally were. So they were, they were moving a little bit. And then by the next morning, they go back out again and they could not find these orcas. Cool. So So hopefully they got out. So yeah, we're we're pretty Japanese officials and locals and and the public are, are hopeful that they were able to to get out of that and escape. So, but I don't know. I I've never heard of this happening before this incident, and it's just kind of wild that. Uh, yeah, that's wild. Yeah, 
And these orcas also are not orcas that are necessarily used to ice. They're they're not like yeah, the, I was getting ready to say. Yeah, they're not like the Antarctic orcas, which kind of you know which know how to deal glaciers. with this. Yeah, exactly. Like these these orcas are not; they don't know how to do any of that. So hopefully that the these guys are able to get out and and be safe. But yeah, just something to be aware of, I suppose. Something to keep an eye on out there. That's really interesting. I'd never heard yeah. of that before either. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I mean, you know, I, I have to think too, and this is just where my mind goes because I'm so interested in orcas specifically and their their behavior and intelligence. But like what they must be thinking in, in that moment. Like mm-hmm. they have, they have such intelligence and emotional intelligence and complexity as well. Like there, there were some calves in this pod, some very young orcas. So I don't know. I, that's just interesting to me, like what they must've been thinking and they were probably communicating with each other, like what was being said between individuals. Mm-hmm. I just think that would be very interesting to know, but um yeah hopefully hopefully they're doing okay now probably a little shaken um (laughs) a little little beaten a little battered a little bruised yeah hopefully they're getting some rest (laughs) so let's move on to some some lighter news we got a new snake species and it's gorgeous snake species oh it is gorgeous beautiful super pretty so this is tudor's coffee snake it inhabits (laughs) coffee plantations of all things Along the Pacific that's, slopes that's of the Andes Mountains. Yeah, a coffee snake. How fun. And they're beautiful. Um, for those listening on audio, they're sort of a dark brown or black color. And if you know what a ringneck snake looks like, they sort of look like that. But it's white mm-hmm. instead of yellow. They kind of look like a rat snake to me, in a way. Yeah, like with some white sprinkled in. Yeah, and they have a little bit of iridescence. There's some other images below that where mm. you can... You can see that iridescent shining it's it's really quite spectacular but obviously coffee plantations are not the the most uh like the best place for snakes to be i would say probably and so it's it's thought that they're becoming more common in plantations due to the destruction of cloud forests which is what they have predominantly called home have you ever heard of cloud forests I can't say how. I was just thinking about that. I was like, that sounds like some kind of fantasy stuff. It, it you you really need to look up images at some point. Okay. They're gorgeous. So these Doing are three. Right now. Yeah, yeah. These are three thousand to five thousand feet above sea level. It's these forests, and it's so misty and and wet and rainy up there. It it really Whoa. does look like yeah yeah. It looks like something right out of a fantasy book. It's super cool. Um, it looks like it looks like uh pandora from avatar it does it does yeah and cloud forests are one of those places where like if you're a scientist and you want to have a couple new species under your belt you go to a cloud forest because there's just (laughs) so much we don't know about the the life up there i mean you're almost guaranteed to find something new i think it was two years ago that i read about a team of scientists who discovered i think it was 20 new reptile species up in a cloud forest 20 that's insane. I mean, that's a, that's a lot of species. Yeah, it's crazy. But this snake is named after Guy Tudor, who was, quote, an all around naturalist and scientific illustrator with a deep fondness for birds and all animals in recognition of the impact he has had on the conservation of South America's bird through his artistry, artistry, end quote. So a pretty cool little snake. Love them. I thought they were gorgeous and I wanted to talk about them. <laughs> A little coffee snake. 
Toodles coffee. They have cute little eyeballs. They do. I was just looking at that. They're so shiny. I know. Well, we got one last news story, and this one is so fascinating. So I'm excited okay. to talk about it. So recently, we did a little blue whale genome analysis, and this reveals significant hybridization with fin whales. Fin so, whales. I yeah. don't think I know what a fin whale is. Well, let's let's talk about it, Jacob. <laughs> so blue okay. whales, we all probably know. They're the largest animals on the planet, reaching, reaching lengths of 110 feet, which is roughly four school buses for those who are visual learners. And they weigh as much as 150 tons. Big. It's about uh, 150 elephants, give or yeah. take. Humongous. For all you visual learners. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. So commercial whaling in the 20th century, which we hate. Commercial whaling decimated populations, which at one point numbered about 250,000. That's a lot of blue That's whales. A lot of whales. And now there are 10,000 to 25,000. So, Whoa, significantly. Yeah. Oh, you're missing a couple zeros there. Seriously. So now they're considered endangered because of that, of course. That that seems, that tracks for me. Right. So this study was published in January, and their whole goal was to analyze the genome of the North Atlantic blue whale population. So they kind of like how, you know, they split up orcas and other animals into populations where they're located on the hemisphere. They right. do the same with blue whales. So they wanted to analyze this population off the coast of North America and Europe because they wanted to check for inbreeding, which has the potential to impede the recovery, right? We, right. Don't, we don't usually like inbreeding. So they were able to piece the genome together by using samples from 31 individuals, which is quite good to have that many individuals of this very endangered species <laughs> um, mm-hmm. to make a genome out of. So here's a quote from Mark Ingstrom, an ecological geneticist at the University of Toronto and a co-author of the study. And they stated, quote, this is a long, laborious process akin to assembling a huge jigsaw puzzle with no picture on the box for guidance. End quote. <laughs> with no picture of the box. <laughs> so a little, a little tough. Um, <laughs> and when they did this, they very quickly discovered that each whale had some fin whale DNA which was perhaps not unexpected because we've known about hybridization between these two species for a while. But the total percentage of fin whale DNA within this group was 3.5%, which is quite significant. That is. So for those who do not know what a fin whale is, they look very similar to blue whales. They're a little bit more gray in color, but they're the second largest animal in the world. And when I say that, you might think, oh, they're, pr- they're probably pretty close to a blue whale, you know, 90 feet, something like that. So their maximum length is 70 feet. And huh. they weigh 45 tons. That is significantly smaller. Yes. that will. That- <laughs> Can we appreciate that these two are somehow hybrid, like, breeding? (laughs) What? (laughs) Breeding. (laughs) Oh, my Lord. (laughs) The the blue whale is easily, like, almost three times, perhaps actually even, yeah, no, that would be more than three times the size of a fin whale, just in weight alone. Yeah. Yeah. That is kind of wild. Nature is crazy. Almost. Almost the blue whales are not quite double the length, but they're close. Yeah, f- yeah, they're they're kind of fin whales are kind of um 
long and skinny, I guess, in a way. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, the point is somehow these two are interbreeding. They're pretty closely related. But again, we've known for many years that this happens. So it's I, this is kind of fun. They they call the hybrids flu whales. Flu whales. Flu whales. Cool. I know it's so I love cute. The whales. Yeah, but. I think just the amount of hybridization that was going on here was quite surprising, and the amount of introgression as well. So, integration is sort of sort of this this process where you have a flu whale hybrid, right? And that flu whale then breeds with a blue whale, and so mm-hmm. those those genetics get like put back into the blue whale population. If that makes sense, that's kind of what introgression is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's kind of weird because we do not have any evidence that the flu whales breed with the fin whales. So whether that's like a, a weird behavioral thing or something, it, it appears like they only breed back with the blue whales. So it's a little weird. Interesting. Yeah. Not quite sure exactly why that is, but do we know like which species tends to be which sex? Like in that, in that pairing? Oh, um, maybe. I don't know, though. I didn't see that um, in my Because that would be interesting work. to know. Because I want to know who's raising the flu whales. Right, right. I mean, it would probably, if I had to guess, it would probably be a blue whale mom. Because I think that would yeah. make the most sense just like anatomically. But um, hey, I'm not sure. I don't know if we know that. But yeah, that's a good question, though. And also, like, the other weird thing is it only appears like this sort of hybridization and then uh, introgression happens in this specific blue whale population in the North Atlantic. Like, we don't think that it happens anywhere else. So, huh. yeah, even though there are other places where fin whales and blue whales are living in the same area, it's just, for some reason, this population is the only one that takes a liking to the fin whales. Don't know why that <laughs> is, but... <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um. So, you know, this is really cool, and luckily, there's no evidence that this fin whale DNA is going to have much of an effect on the blue whale population in any sort of negative light, so that's kind of nice. But it is a little bit concerning because this level of integration is going to reduce the amount of blue whale genetics in the population, right? right? And that could make the whales a little bit less resilient to climate change or other other plights like that. But overall, you know, this is not really as much of a concern as it is like, this is weird. Why is this happening? This is kind of cool. It's cool, but it's a little weird. It's a little, it's a little strange. Um, But also, here's something else really happy. The genome also revealed that there's a lot less inbreeding than we thought in this population. So that's good. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Got a plus. Also, there's actually, this this story is actually just really happy and nice but there seems to be some good gene flow between the west and east atlantic populations so we got some genetic diversity love that let's go we love genetic diversity we love genetic diversity so next time you guys are in the north atlantic because i know probably a lot of our listeners are there quite often watching blue whales um just just think that there might be some flu whale dna in that blue whale kind of (laughs) cool interesting that's it's not really my interesting life. that it only, it only flows one direction. That's kind of why I was wondering who raises them. Because I feel like if the blue whales are raising the flu whales, it would make more sense that the flu whales only breed with 
the blue whales. Right. Yeah. That I didn't even think about that actually, but that's a really good point. Again, whales are so emotionally and just in general intelligent. Like mm. that. That's there's going to be a lot of behavioral things that probably go into reproduction right so yeah that's yeah. a very good point that's very interesting yeah i don't know if we know why it's unidirectional but you know for some reason that's what it appears to be whales know what they like i don't know what whales say. know what they like and good for them honestly good you for, know good for them good for the whales we love to hear that it's not my life go to see a flu whale though i feel like that would just be the best a little flu whale out <laughs> I know, there right let's see little flu whale Appar- apparently they're about the size of fin whales but they Mm-hmm. look a little bit more like a blue whale. They sort of have the fin whale color markings, but they're like more blue. Interesting. So, yeah, it's kind of cool. But yeah, very fun. I mean, I don't know about you, but I think those are some really fun news stories. I think those it was a good week. very fun. It was, it was a, good, a good, pretty pretty good week for uh, for for news. It seems it was just this week, as I mentioned, um, not last week. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> last week was radio silence, but that's okay. So, yeah, thanks everyone for tuning into the Metazoa podcast. We hope that you enjoyed as much as we did. I had a lot of fun with this I had one. A lot of fun. Yeah. So if you'd like to support us, which you should, um, you can go to our social media. So we got Instagram and Twitter and TikTok. We are most active on our Instagram just to see the fun things that we're up to. And if you have any feedback, we love if you to want to he- hear more of our fun and uh, our adventures, <laughs> let us know because we've got, we've got plenty of them. We have plenty of them. No, actually, I'll ask this question to our audience because I think it'd be really fun to do an episode where we talk about our national park adventures that we've had. Because we, we've had some kind of wild mm. stuff that's that's happened that I think would be very fun. Mm-hmm. Um, so if y'all want to hear about that, more about the pits in Mammoth Cave or <laughs> that time we saw wild hogs five feet from us in Congaree National Park, uh, which is very scary. Um, <laughs> or, the, or the hogs in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Oh, the hog pit. Yeah. Oh. Oh, yeah, that'll have to be shared in an episode. Well, if you guys want to hear more about the hog pit or any of our other other pits, let us know, because I think that'd be really fun to talk about. But yeah, thanks, everyone, for tuning in. And we hope to see you in the next one. Bye bye. Bye bye.